Our guest speaker this morning has shown himself faithful to undergo the seminary process at the Expositors Seminary, which uh, is ultimately in Jupiter. In Jupiter, Florida, not Jupiter the planet, Jupiter, you might have been wondering. You, gotta, you have to say Florida when you say Jupiter, don't you? People are going to wonder if you're out of your mind. Dave uh, grew up in Austria in a missionary home. And I've seen this happen a number of times where a young man, young woman grows up in a missionary home but doesn't come to know Christ until years later and then recalls all of the the sacrifice and the effective ministry that his or her parents have engaged in all that time. And I think that's probably the case with, with Dave. Saved when he was 17, maybe later than what most missionary kids think they are saved at. Uh, But Dave clearly was saved by Christ at that time and uh, completed his undergraduate degree, was looking to go to a church to be involved in pastoral ministry. And he said some things last night that were really, really encouraging. One of the things that he mentioned was the fact that he had not yet at that point shown a pattern of submission to the local church. And it was at that point where he is hearing the elders say, you need to do this that I think he and his wife began to pray and think, we really are, we have a great opportunity here. And a lot of that, and this will resonate with your hearts personally, uh, a lot of that was the result of the work of Lance Quinn. And uh, Lance, as you know, is near and dear to my heart, really a father to me in the faith for 20 plus, maybe 25 years now. Lance has been here to preach. Lance really was the the primary uh, personal uh, human vehicle by which the Lord helped us plant the Anchor Bible Church. And so uh, Dave sat under Lance's teaching for a time, and, and his exact words were, I was blown away. And not to say that Lance is this, you know, incredibly dynamic, amazing speaker. Lance would tell you that's not the issue. I would tell you that's not the issue when effective ministry takes place. It is that the word is being proclaimed properly, that there's not some haphazard approach to it where somebody's just kind of throwing things out. But there is a legitimate process by by which a person arrives at the place where a message is delivered as a result of honest, hard, spirit-filled study. Well, Lance uh, and uh, another man named Jerry Ragg are very close friends. Lance had a huge impact on Jerry's life. Jerry, as a result, many years ago, had a massive impact on my life and continues to have an impact on my life to this day. And I really believe it was... The, it was Jerry that the Lord used to show me my false conversion. And so in the midst of a, of a period of counseling, uh, Jerry just continued to challenge me with what a godly man is. He really continued to challenge me to what it means to be a Christian. There are a lot of false conversions uh, in, our, in, in the modern church. And Jerry continued to graciously and lovingly speak those truths to me. And so Uh, Jerry, uh, then, as a result, has had uh, a great impact on Dave's life as well. So although Dave and I only met last night, I feel as though Dave and I have a long-term connection, and I'm thrilled that he's here. He he represents his wife, Amy, and their two children, Micah, who is five, and Sophie, who is three. They plan to go to Malawi full-time in June, and so that's just right around the corner And as we have prayed and trusted the Lord to give us wisdom as to how we might not fall into that category of churches who want to be faithful but can only give a few dollars here and a few dollars there, our hope is that it, and it seems as if the Lord has opened up this opportunity for us to have a strong and lasting impact in Malawi 
Brian's been here, Gideon has been here, and now Dave is here, and uh, we think next week Matt Kopp will be here. Matt also is going to Malawi. Matt will pastor the church there and also be involved in the seminary. So with that, I want to ask Dave to come and bring the Word of God to us, uh, but this is more than just uh, an opportunity for you to hear from another man. This is an opportunity for you, you to hear from a man who has been faithful and will faithfully proclaim the word. But this could very well be the next step, the next building block, so to speak, in our faithfulness to the ultimate commission of the church. And that's to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the world. So, Dave, would you come and share God's word with us? Well, good morning. My name is Dave, as he has said. It is a privilege to be joining you guys this morning for worship. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to meet with you guys. I had a great dinner last night with a good handful. And uh, just even learning your story of how the Lord brought this church about and just the things that have transpired since then. So thank you for allowing me to be with you this morning. Didn't realize the connection with Jerry as well as with Lance. It's phenomenal. And uh, even tonight, I'm hoping to go join Lance at his church for their evening worship service and reconnect with him and really just to be able to thank him in person for his service to the Lord and how the Lord used that to really uh, soften my heart and open my eyes to my need for further training. You know, I was sharing last night that for about 10 years I lived my life, my Christian life, sitting in an airplane about 35,000 feet altitude. And I can recognize Christian truths, you know, the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the scripture and doctrine of salvation, and I would sign that doctrinal statement, but I had a very generic understanding, and it wasn't until I sat in a ministry where there was exposition of God's word, really unpacking the intention of the very text and the implications that flow out of it, that the airplane then landed, we got out of the airplane and started hiking the terrain of the scripture, and I was blown away, and just Frankly, I was very uh, severely humbled. It's funny because, you know, I'd been to Bible college and I'm sitting in Lance's preaching and um, I had a hard time keeping up with the sermons. And I was like, well, it must not be his preaching because everybody around me is taking notes. <laughs> I'm like, I just must be a dummy. <laughs> but the Lord used that to begin to convict me of really a hard heart and a lack of understanding what the scriptures really teach. And so he was the, the vehicle the Lord used to begin to open my eyes for the need for further training and as uh, Pastor Todd mentioned, you know, elders were speaking into my life. And I was at a crossroads. Do I heed the counsel that's being spoken into my life by godly elders who will have an accountability before Christ of how they discharged their ministry, of shepherding the flock of God among them? Or am I going to reject that counsel? And so I was like, am I going to be a fool or a wise man? And the Lord was just really using the book of Proverbs at that point in time to soften my heart. And it was a process that took about two years you know, these changes don't happen overnight. So take heart. If the Lord's working in your heart, he's the one who's initiated that work. He's going to bring it to pass. He will bring it to completion, the work that he has started in, in our lives. So with that being said, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into the word together and uh, feast on the passage this morning. Gracious Lord, we do thank you for the grace of corporate worship. Thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Thank you for the saints that are gathered uh, to honor you and to seek to grow in their understanding of who you are, how you've revealed yourself, and um, Lord, really to allow our lives to be transformed and conformed to the image of your Son. So I pray that you would grant me clarity this morning, uh, that your Spirit would take these scriptures and work them into our hearts, 
uh, to the end that we uh, are more faithful to what you've instructed us to do and doing it in the manner that you would have us do it. So thank you. We ask for your help and your strength. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the passage I'm looking at this morning is going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, so you can be working your way to that. And I just thought I would take a minute to explain why I've even chosen this passage to preach this morning, because obviously you've got a whole Bible, well, why this particular passage? And there's two reasons, one of which is about probably two, three years ago, there's a critical point in my own growth and maturing as a believer where I was frankly wrestling with a lot of discontentment. You know, what is my role in the body of Christ, and how have I been gifted, and how have I not been gifted, and you know, what about those people? I kind of want to be like those people over there. So there was just a lot of discontentment in my heart that was just rolling around, and uh, this is a passage that the Lord used to frankly humble me as well as to open my eyes to things that are in God's domain and things that are in my domain. (laughs) And so the Lord really instructed me from this passage, but another reason is that Really, even as he mentioned, you know, our goal is to be in Malawi by June of this year. Me and my family, we're going into a new context, a new ministry setting where we're going to be in, in a situation where we're thrust together with a new group of believers, and we all have a desire to honor the Lord with the work that's taking place through this preaching academy as well as through the local church that we'll be serving in. Even though we have a common objective and a common goal, man, it's just a ripe opportunity for unmet expectations for conflict, for frustration, for disappointment. And so really, our prayer as we're preparing to go to Africa is, Lord, would you please be preparing us, and may we do what we can to further cultivate humility so that we're not going in and causing conflict, but we can be peacemakers in whatever conflicts may arise. We would be naive to think that there's not going to be any of that. But by God's grace, we've been given instruction, we've been given his word, that tells us how to anticipate it and really to diffuse the bomb before it comes. (laughs) So there's really, those are two reasons why I just wanted to focus in on this passage and even to encourage you guys with the same truths that I've been challenged by, blessed by, and continue to be encouraged by as well. So with that being said, Romans chapter 12, let me work my way there myself. And as we go into this passage and really dive into verses 3 through 5, there's a couple of questions that I want you guys to be thinking through this morning and uh, that that you should be able to answer in your own heart and in your own thinking. Those few questions are, how do I keep my involvement and my service within the body of Christ God-centered so that it doesn't degenerate into the proverbial rat race of man-centered comparisons? So in the business world, it's, you know, people competing against each other, trying to become first. Well, how do you avoid that mentality, especially in the church? How do you maintain service to Christ in the church with a heart and an attitude of joyfulness? How do I maintain this true and this genuine joy in my service to Christ? And those are a few of the questions that really, as we're working through this passage, I hope that you come away with an ability to answer it from this very text in this passage. So with that being said, let me open up to Romans 12. I'm going to read starting in verse 3 and following. Notice what Paul says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, And the members do not all have the same function. 
Well, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So again, Romans 12, 3 through 8 right there. Now, it's interesting because verses 1 and 2, and, and really, just to zoom out for a second, the whole book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, is a lot of rich theological truth. Really, what is the gospel? What does it mean to be justified by faith? But chapter 12 is a pivot point within the book where he really launches into the practical repercussions and outworkings of these rich doctrinal truths. So a lot of us in here maybe even have memorized verses 1 and 2 in our own struggle for sanctification. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And those are rich verses, and we memorize those, and we think, okay, I can't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but I need to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So even just right there, how do you change? Well, you submit your life to the word of God, and God does the transformation in your life. So the transformation, it's something that happens to us, yet we also have an active role in that process. But what's so interesting, in this very context where Paul is instructing believers, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he doesn't go on into just how to do that on an individual basis, the first thing that he launches into, starting in verse 3, is the corporate implications of this transformation that takes place in your life individually. So the grace and the work of God, as it trickles down and as it lavishes and transforms you in your inner being, and in your inner man, well, it's going to have an outward implication. It's going to have an outward repercussion. And that's what he's instructing us in, starting in verses 3 and following. So it's just amazing because verses 1 and 2, we tend to individualize them, but Paul doesn't individualize them. He directly links it to the impact that this has on corporate body life. So as we're working through verses 3 through 5, and you even have this on the front page of your uh, bulletin, we're going to see that there's two correctives to cultivate humility as we serve the body with our gifts. And let me just go ahead and tell you what those two are. Verse 3, we're going to see that God distributes gifts that's the first corrective. The second corrective is that God has designed the body. And we're going to unpack these in more detail in just a minute as we walk through them. So let's dive into verse 3 and let's understand this first corrective is, frankly, every one of us, we can never say that we're humble enough, right? <laughs> Until we're in Christ's presence, we're going to continue to battle against pride. And so this is a passage that is never out of season for us. So how do we cultivate this humility that is so central for Christians serving in the body of Christ together? Notice what Paul says in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, dot, dot, dot. Let me just stop right there. It's so easy to gloss over those opening words. For by the grace given to me, okay, get on with it, Paul. What are you going to tell me? Say it to me. Put it to me straight, right? Well, don't just gloss over those words because those are crucial words that really we can go to school even on that statement by the grace given to me. Well, Paul, what's this grace that's been given to you? I mean, have you talked about that grace? Well, actually he has. In the opening verses of this book, in fact, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So for himself, he's talking about this grace of being called to be an apostle, which he was a unique mouthpiece representing Christ's word authoritatively in really the foundational stage of the church. You know, a few other passages, he talks about this same grace. Uh, One of them is in Galatians chapter 2. And actually, why don't we go ahead and flip over to that? Because this is going to become very important for us to see and understand that Paul was a recipient of a specific unique grace. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the, un- to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So in other words, he's talking about a grace that was given to him to be uniquely the apostle to the Gentiles. So of all the apostles, he had a unique grace, a unique commission to go and herald and proclaim the gospel among Gentiles. Now, if you remember in Acts, he would go to the synagogues first, and once they kicked him out, then basically he would go and preach to the Gentiles. So he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 3. We see another piece of this grace that was given to him. Ephesians 3 just... This is a a mind-boggling passage. Look at verse 7 and following. Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Notice verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul's talking about a grace that, yes, it commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, but not just is he going to a particular group of people, but he was given a unique grace of being a mouthpiece and a herald of a mystery that had been previously concealed, the mystery being that God in Christ was reconciling Jews and Gentiles into one new man and that being reconciled to God through Christ. So it's the mystery of the gospel. So Paul was given this grace to be a herald and a mouthpiece of this mystery. And not only that, but this actual mystery is the eternal plan of God through all the ages. So Paul, I mean, talk about one specific man at one very specific point in time within the grand scope of God's eternal plan, Paul was that man who received this grace to speak, to herald, to articulate the precious truths of God, eternal truths that even prophets in in days of old didn't quite comprehend and understand. He was speaking new revelation to the church. Talk about a tremendous grace. You know, we won't turn there, but even in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about the grace to lay the foundation of the church. We'll work back to Romans chapter 12. So this is a a really important statement that you can't gloss over. For by the grace given to me, he has received a tremendous grace. But what's fascinating, and I want you guys to understand this and perceive this, he's speaking from a position of receiving and submitting to the authority of God. 
In other words, as God has poured his grace into him, now he is speaking that grace to the church at large. So here's, here's the irony. He's a man speaking with absolute authority, but he's a man speaking under absolute submission to God's word. We don't tend to think of authority and humility or submission as being two qualities that go hand in hand. But Paul merges and fuses these two qualities perfectly for, I mean, not perfectly because only Christ is perfect, but you know what I'm saying. He's just illustrating the very truth that he's about to tell us. So likewise, for you and me, we are recipients of grace. It's not an apostolic grace, but it's the grace of salvation. It's the grace of having received gifts to serve in the church. It's the grace of having a testimony to talk about what Christ has done in our lives. So just an, an interesting takeaway already just from these opening words, you know, in your ministry, in your discipleship ministry, in your counseling ministry with one another, in your evangelistic ministry with people outside the church, if you want to speak with authority and with a conviction that they can't argue with, well, that conviction can only come about by yourself being in a position of submission to the word of God. Authority comes from submission. Authority comes from nothing else. And the Apostle Paul is actually putting that on display. By the grace that's been given to me, I say to everyone among you. Now, when we hear that word submission, man, we tend to think, you know, a synonym. What's a synonym of submission? Well, resignation, right? We tend to to confuse submission with resignation, but those are very two different words. Resignation is like, well, ho-hum, there's nothing else I can do. I guess I'll just let myself get dragged along. Submission is the furthest thing from that. Submission is actively exercising your will with self-control in the promises that God has spoken. All right, Lord, this is who you say you are. This is how you say you work. This is what you've said you've done. Let me yield my will to those very promises and to that word. That's the grace of submission. It's so far from resignation. And as you engage in that process, you know what? You, you get grounded in your convictions, and there's a tone and a voice of authority that begins to emerge in your conversations with others because your life is being rooted and grounded in the very words of God. So there's such important truth that's even in those opening words, for by the grace given to me. Well, Paul, by the grace given to you, what are you going to tell us? Let's hear what Paul has to say to us. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So really, he's saying, don't think this way, but do think this way. Or to use another scriptural imagery, putting off and putting on, right? They're corollaries. How do you change? Well, you have to put off an old pattern and put on a new pattern. So he's, he's exposing both sides of that equation. And it's interesting because this word think, really it shows up four times in the original language. So the thought process is crucial. And even to tie this back into verses one and two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, what is transformation of your mind? changing how you think. He's telling us how to change how we think. Don't think this way, but instead think this way. All right, Paul, so how should we not think? And notice what he says, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, don't hyperthink. Don't overthink yourself. That's pride. This is insanity. This is not reality. Uh, That's essentially the thing that he's commanding to be put off. But on the flip side, what should you do? 
Well, think with sober judgment. All right? To think with sober judgment or to think with, uh, you know, sobriety. You might say don't be intoxicated or drunk with pride, but think with absolute sobriety. Uh, another way to put this is to have a sober self-estimation. In other words, view yourself the very way that God views you. Don't be in some imaginary world of thinking that you're something way out here, when in fact, what does God say about who you are? Uh, how has he made you? How has he gifted you, et cetera, et cetera? And that's where we're about to go in a minute. Now, before we move on, though, it's interesting because when he says to think with sober judgment, there's an interesting um, illustration of this same word of sobriety or sober-mindedness that appears in a very different context. Namely, in the Gospels, there's the story of the Gerasene demoniac. If you guys remember that account, it talks about this man who lived in the tombs. He had an unclean spirit. He couldn't be bound. He wrenched his chains apart. He broke his shackles in pieces. No one could subdue him. He was crying out and he was cutting himself. I mean, a very graphic image of this man who was demon-possessed. People were terrified of going around him. Well, he has this encounter with Christ. Christ casts out and expels the demons, and that's when the demons go into this herd of swine, and they rush down the hill into the lake, and they all drown. Well, after that, Christ, you know, he casts the demon out. The people see this man, and they make an observation that the man was clothed, and he was in his right mind. It's the same word of what we're being instructed to do right here, to think with sober judgment, to have a right mind. So really, to put these two together, don't be insane with hubris, thinking that you're something that you're not, but be grounded in reality in terms of who you truly are as defined by the Lord's perspective. Well, Paul, thank you for this instruction and thank you for telling me not to be proud, but so far, I mean... Anybody, anywhere can tell you, yeah, pride isn't a good attribute, so stop being proud. Well, how do I stop being proud? Help me, because I recognize there's pride in my life, so what's the key, so to speak, to click unlock it so that I can actually obey and follow through what you're commanding me to do? And that's where we come in the last part of verse 3. And this is just such a profound truth, and really this last part of verse 3 is what the Lord used. You know, I was sharing earlier in my own growth process about three years ago or so, this is the part that the Lord really used to open my eyes and to foster, cultivate that humility in my thinking. So let's notice what he says in the last part of verse 3. So not thinking with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now let's just be good, good students of the scripture for a second. Um, who's doing the action? Well, God is doing the action. Well, what's the action that God is doing? He is assigning. What does assign mean? It just means to distribute, to allot, to divvy up. It's like if I had a, you know, a big pie, a big apple pie, and I was going to chop it up and give everybody pieces. You know, I'm the one who's cutting it up. I'm going to give you a piece. I'm going to distribute it here, allot some over there. That's all the idea means. And so that God, he's the actor. What's he doing? He's distributing. Well, what is it that he's distributing? Well, the phrase in verse 3 is a measure of faith, each according to the measure of faith. Okay, a measure of faith. Well, what is this measure of faith that God is distributing to each different member in the church? Well, measure of faith, yes, it includes belief, as in I have faith in God, 
but it's so much more than that. When he's talking about measure of faith, he's about to link it in verses 6 through 8 explicitly to spiritual gifting, spiritual enablement. What is your service to the church? Man, this is incredible. So God is the one who is exercising his perfect sovereignty in distributing to each member in the church their particular enablement, their particular gifting, their particular service, and he is the one who exercises his perfect wisdom and his perfect power, and it's his prerogative to do as he pleases in giving those gifts to each as he does. Boom! Is this not so liberating of a truth? I mean, you see different people serving in church, and you're like, man, I really like the way that guy preaches. I wish I could preach like that. Man, that guy, he's the best discipler. I wish I could disciple like that. Or, man, look at the way that that individual over there can teach children. I wish I could interact with kids the way they interact with kids. And there's kind of this this low boil of really jealousy of others in the church who may be serving in ways that you wish you could serve. And so inwardly in your heart, you start to cultivate this bitterness, this resentment, and even this kind of like, oh, I wish I did it the way they did it, (laughs) right? Well, instead of being angry and frustrated and jealous and bitter against others around you in the church who are serving and maybe even outpacing you in ministry, you know what? As they're exercising faithfulness and and it's making you angry and upset, you know what? Your beef is not with that individual. It's actually a form of discontentment against God. God, you didn't exercise you know, your sovereign will in the way that I would have. I would have poured out those gifts on me. <laughs> and really, we start to grumble against the Lord for not making us, you know, whatever it is that we in our pride think we ought to be. So there's that connection. Again, don't be, you know, drunk with pride. Well, the way that pride manifests itself in the church is a jealousy and a bitterness thinking, I wish I had the gifts that other people have. And he's just pointing out the way that you can cultivate that humility understand, recognize, submit your will to the truth that God has made every individual precisely the way they are with the gifts and the enablements that they have. Rather than begrudging him for it, thank him for it and allow yourself to be convicted, allow yourself to be challenged by others who are exercising the grace and the gifts that have been given to them. You know, this is this is a great passage, especially for guys who are in seminary and they're going through preaching labs and they're kind of sizing each other up against one another. <laughs> when I was in uh, Malawi in November, I actually was able to work through this passage with a handful of the guys because certainly they would be going through these same struggles of, you know, I wish I could communicate like that guy does. I wish I was a powerful preacher the way that guy was. I wish I could counsel the way that guy does. And it becomes this horizontal, you know, elbowing of one another trying to outdo one another out of pride, not out of love for Christ. And so just right here, this last part of verse 3, this fundamental truth that God exercises his sovereignty and his perfect wisdom to give to each and every one of you the gifts and the enablements that you do have. I mean, it's such a liberating truth because no longer do you have to be in a mindset of really trying to outdo one another and competing against each other, but faithfulness to who God has made you and the gifts that he's given you. You know, there's a a commentator, Robert Thomas, which you probably know Robert Thomas. He was commenting on this same truth, but really from a different passage. 1 Corinthians 12, 
but the truths apply nonetheless. And I want to share some of the things that he wrote. Speaking of God distributing gifts, he says, their disbursement is not, <clears throat> is not on an arbitrary basis, nor on the basis of whim, whether human or otherwise. It's not in accordance with man's wishes or requests, nor do gifts come as a form of reward or recognition for human achievement, spiritual or otherwise. Since he possesses the capacity of volition, he is capable of making determinations like this. He can and does decide what combination of gifts is best for each person and his role in the body of Christ. Brothers, sisters, be comforted. Be warmed by these truths that the Lord is the one who is building his church. He's the one who distributes gifts. I mean, we have a, a pretty good-sized group of, of saints in here this morning. That's a lot of variety of gifts to serve and to edify and to build up this church. And there's even some who are serving in you know, children's ministry this morning so that you can be sitting under the preaching of his word. They are serving with the gifts that they've been given. Praise the Lord for their faithfulness because you are actually being edified and built up because of their service. So be encouraged. You know, but there's also some, some practical things that flow out of this. How do you practice a good stewardship of the gifts that have been given to you? And there's just a couple of suggestions that I have in response to this. The first, what I would call it a stewardship principle, is be faithful to invest what you've been given. You know, really, the, the question that you want to wrestle with, and every individual has to wrestle with this, is what is faithfulness versus what is success? We're such a success-driven society that how do you know when you've done enough, right? How do you know when you've served enough, when you've prayed enough, when you've preached enough, when you've counseled enough, when you've discipled enough? And, and it's easy to lapse into this mentality and this mode of just, working so hard that really you forget why you're doing it and you're actually in the process abdicating other responsibilities that God has also given you. So some human-oriented definition of success is not the goal. Faithfulness is the goal. And is that not the truth that's presented in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, if you guys remember that account? So the key is faithfulness. Are you being faithful with what you've been given? Well, what have you been given? Think of it in terms of you know, every one of us is given time. Uh, you've been given resources. Uh, you've been given certain talents and abilities. You've been given certain desires and interests. But then also in the context of the church, there are needs that need to be met. And so all of those things work together. Are you being faithful in the discharge of all those various resources that the Lord in his perfect wisdom has bestowed and granted to you? Well, the second simple good stewardship principle that I would even mention and encourage you in is work hard and grow in whatever gifts that you have been given. And just a practical way to do this is, I was talking earlier, is you're looking around in the body of Christ, you're looking around in the church, and there's other people serving in certain ways. My guess is right now, if I were to ask you, you know what, who's one or two people that, you know what, you really look up to the way they serve, and you could go to school on them, that's exactly what you should go do. Pursue those individuals, get in their back pocket, so to speak, and ask them to teach you and to help you grow in the very ways that they're gifted. And you think maybe the Lord has given you those same abilities as well. You know, I have a friend out in uh, Florida. He's a young single guy, and he's making a lot of money. 
So we were talking recently, and he was saying, yeah, I think the Lord may have given me a, a gift of giving and being generous. And I was like, perfect. Can you think of somebody else in the church who has that same gift, and you see them putting that to use? And he's like, no, I've never thought about that. Bingo. Go to school on that guy. Ask him to share with you the principles and the patterns that he's learned of how to be faithful in the discharge of the gifts that he's given. You know, for a young guy, minimal responsibility, a lot of money, he needs that discipleship. He needs that coaching desperately, lest he enter into some wrong patterns that don't end up benefiting the church, but end up harming him spiritually. Well, it's the same way with any gifts that exist within the church. Be a student. Go to school on others around you. That You know what? As you watch them serve, you're challenged by their example. You're convicted by their example. And you realize, I have a lot of growing I need to do. In humility, go and approach them and invite them to instruct you in how to go about serving in a more fruitful way. And again, that's to the end of being faithful with the gifts that God in his wisdom has distributed to each one individually. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, he says that he did work harder than all the others, but right on the heels of that, he also acknowledged that it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. So bottom line, every one of us, we need to work our tails off for the kingdom, but recognizing it that it, God is the one who's given us the grace to even do that. And so even entering into service with the perspective of verse 3, that Lord, you've made me the way you've made me. You've wired me the way you've wired me. You've given me the energy I have or the lack of energy that I have. I mean, just intrinsically, the way the Lord has made you and wired you opens up certain opportunities for service and precludes you from other opportunities of service. Praise the Lord. That's all in his hands as well. So that's this first corrective of how to cultivate humility is to recognize and understand God is the one who bestows, he distributes, he allots a measure of faith to each one individually. What an encouraging truth that that is. And far from being jealous of others who may be very gifted in certain ways, allow their example to achieve its intended result that you're challenged to work harder and to kick it into gear. You know what? That's the gift achieving its intended result. Is it not that you are challenged, that you're convicted, that you're edified, that you're built up? So vindicate the scriptures again by submitting and yielding yourself to what it teaches and what it says. Well, the second corrective, really in verses 4 through 5, and this one's going to be uh, quite a bit shorter, is the truth that God has designed the body, and not just has God designed the body, not only is he the architect, but he, he has designed the body to cooperate, not to compete. All right, so we're all on the same team. We're not competing against each other. Let's read verses 4 through 5. He says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now he's using an illustration here of a body that has many parts with various functions. Now it's, a, it's important to notice that he's using this particular metaphor or illustration because there's a lot of other illustrations for the church that you see in the New Testament. Um, some of the other ones you think of the church is called the bride of Christ. The church is called a building or a temple or a sanctuary. 
You know, we have the vine and the branches. You have, you know, the shepherd and the sheep. So there's all these different types of, of metaphors and illustrations that are used in the scriptures. But this one uniquely here, it talks about the church being a body with various members. And in other places, we learn that Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. So in other words, he is the one who's dictating what takes place. We as members within the church simply receive our instructions and our orders, our enablements, our grace gifting, the measure of faith to do as the head is instructing and really enabling us to do. So the lesson really from this illustration is that each one in the church is fulfilling a different function and there is variety and there's diversity but even in that, there's actually a profound unity because it's all to the same end of really that the body is being built up. And even as we looked at briefly in Ephesians chapter 3, that God is putting his wisdom on display to a cosmic host through the church. So the church becomes the object lesson to the heavenly host who are watching this lesson unfold. I mean, this is just profound. Church doesn't just exist for you and me. It's not a man-originated idea. God is the one himself who designed the church. The way he designed it is that there's varieties of gifting, but there's a tremendous unity as each part does its, its respective component. Well, because the church is a unity in Christ, that means that every one of us becomes and is, in fact, dependent on one another. Now, a few minutes ago, I was talking about you know, this tendency for jealousy and for pride and for even this competitive spirit to creep up within our hearts. At that point, if you're not putting that to death and if you're cultivating that in your heart and in your mind, that's the beginnings of an autoimmune disorder that's going to take place within the church. You know, we know about autoimmune disorders where the body turns in on itself and it attacks itself and breaks itself down. You know, in science and in medicine, there's all sorts of autoimmune disorders. Well, that can happen in the church when we forget that the church exists as one entity with a variety of gifts, but they all need to work together, not compete against one another. And this becomes such a crucial corrective because we so easily in our pride lapse into this competitive mindset. You know, it's funny, my, my boy who's five, his name is Micah. He is such a competitive little guy that everything turns into a competition. You know, we're going to get in the car. He wants to be the first to buckle his seatbelt. I won. You know, he and his little sister going to brush his teeth. He's the first one to brush his teeth and finish. I won. You know, they're getting dressed in the morning. He's the first to get his clothes on. I won. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. It's always turning into a competition. So we're working with him on pride. <laughs> and uh, But we can so easily do the same thing in the church where, I outserved those people, and in our hearts, what are we doing? We're cultivating the very thing that has just been prohibited against in verse 3. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. It's not a competition. Every one of us is to exercise and cultivate faithfulness as unto the Lord. And as we do that, there is actually health within the church, within the body of Christ, as it's built up. Now, it's interesting because these two correctives that, we've, that we're looking at in verses 3 through 5, I've just got to ask the question, what's at stake if we don't understand this and if we don't obey what we're being instructed to obey in these couple of verses? Because there is a significant takeaway. 
So the question that I'm throwing out to you is, so what? So what if we don't obey this? So what if we don't understand this? What's the repercussion? What's the fallout? And let me just suggest that there's a couple of fallouts of what's going to take place. The first one, if you don't comprehend and understand what he's saying in verses 3 through 5, is that you are going to operate out of what's intrinsically within your heart, namely this proud disposition, and you're going to start to elbow your way forward and really trying to get ahead of everyone else in the church, that rat race mentality. You know, I'm using this gesture right here with my elbows. I think we all understand that because we're all crowded in within the church. Oh, get out of my way there. Get out of my way here. And we're just elbowing and trying to get our way to the front so that we can be prominent within the church. Well, it's incredible. In Third John, there was an individual named Diotrephes. That's exactly what he did, and he shut down the church. You had believers who were wanting to exercise and cultivate hospitality to really missionaries, but Diotrephes, unless he was the one calling the shots, then nobody was allowed to do anything because he loved the praise of men. He wanted to be prominent. He wanted to be the main guy doing everything. So he didn't let anybody around them even exercise their gifts. He was a wicked man. That's the, the tendency of what we're going to lapse into ourselves if we're not submitting and yielding ourselves to these verses. The other alternative is, you know, we may try to elbow our way forward, but we realize it's futile. There's no way I'm going to be able to outpace that guy over there. There's no way I'm as skilled as that person over there. And then we think to ourselves, well, if I can't be number one, then I'm just not going to play. I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go home. You know, that self-pity, turning inward in on yourself, and just kind of like, ho-hum, woe is me. I want somebody to come and pursue me and tell me how great I am. We really want you. We really need you. That's the tendency of what we're going to lapse into if we're not yielding our will and our understanding to what he's teaching here. So again, the goal's not to be number one to begin with. The goal is to be faithful with exactly what the Lord has given you. You know, and even just a, a helpful thing that was explained to me is we tend to, to think of priorities in a hierarchy. You know, first you have maybe God, and then you have church, and then you have family, or, or maybe it's God, and then family, and then church. I'm not sure how that order works. Well, it's not a vertical hierarchy. It's actually a horizontal scheme of responsibilities. You're accountable to your family, and you're accountable to the church, and you're accountable to your job, and you're accountable over here. And so it's like you have to juggle all of the responsibilities simultaneously. So this week, it may mean, you know what, I'm going to go work double time over here. And then next week, you know what, this is a responsibility. I need to tend doubly hard to this responsibility over here. Again, it's cultivating faithfulness out of a recognition of what are the various responsibilities, what are the various enablements that I've been given, and let the results be in the Lord's domain. Again, the outcome the byproduct, that is in God's hands. He can do as he pleases with our efforts, with our talents. As for you and me, our concern is not with that. Our concern must be with exercising and cultivating faithfulness. Because that alone is the responsibility that's been entrusted to us. Whether there's fruit or whether there's not, outwardly speaking, that's not our concern. Lord, let me honor you. Let me be faithful in the discharge of whatever gifts and faith you've granted to me. So again, just tremendously challenging as well as encouraging truths of how exactly to cultivate this humility 
understand that God is the one who has given you precisely the measure of faith that he's given you, but then also understanding the church is not a competition. The church is actually a unified body, that as each part is doing its respective component, the church actually matures and is built up as a unity. So, so encouraging. And even just a bit of a testimony on that second component, that the church is a unity. In Ephesians 4, which uses some similar ideas, one of the things it says is that Christ has given gifts to the church, and it talks about, you know, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, for the equipping of the saints. You know, I used to, if you would have asked me, you know, 10 years ago, for instance, Dave, how do you as a Christian grow? I would have said, well, you have to be diligent to study your Bible, maybe memorize scripture, spend time in prayer, and then you'll grow. Well, you know what? That answer is good, but it's missing out on a central component of what the scriptures teach. Namely, you have not yet availed yourself of the gifts and the resources of others within the church. And explicitly in Ephesians 4, it talks about Christ gave those gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So now if you were to ask me, Dave, how can I grow spiritually? I would say, are you faithfully attending and sitting under the preaching of God's word where God's word is being heralded, declared, articulated? Because in that process, you in fact are being equipped. You are being built up so that you can do your respective ministry, you know, both outside the church in terms of evangelism as well as inside the church in your service and the discharge of whatever gifts you've been given. So body life is crucial. Service in the church is central. How do you do it with the right attitude? Understand what God has given and how he has designed the church to work. So we see these profound truths just in a couple of verses right here in Romans 12. So let me commit these things to the Lord in prayer and ask him to seal these truths in our hearts so that we can serve really with an attitude of joy and with thanksgiving for what it is that he has done. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for this little stick of dynamite tucked away in verses 3 through 5 of Romans 12 that really shapes our understanding of the church and your prerogative to distribute and to assign gifts as you've done. Uh, Lord, we confess that in our hearts we do size ourselves up against each other. There is a tendency towards discontentment, towards pride, but thank you that you don't just pretend it doesn't exist. You, in fact, instruct us ahead of time saying, don't think that way. Lord, you know what's in our hearts. May we not be self-deceived into thinking something that we're not, but that we would cultivate this humility that really you instruct and command us to cultivate. And thank you, Lord, that you are the initiator. You are the primary doer and actor, and we are mere recipients of the grace that has been given to us. So I do thank you for this local church, this local expression of the body of Christ, that Christ, you as the head, you are building your church and these are your people. And may they be faithful uh, to discharge whatever it is that you've given to each one of them in a spirit really of humility and of joy and uh, being faithful to discharge uh, that grace. So we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit that produces the conviction, that takes the word and and renews our hearts and our minds in it. And may we uh, submit and yield our wills to these very truths. We thank you and pray this in your mighty and, and powerful and precious name. Amen.